This is the Sunday Times Politics Weekly, where we unpack the week's big political stories. I'm Mike Siluma, and thanks for joining us. This week, the country was abuzz with news that the villains of the state capture story in South Africa, the Gupta brothers, had been arrested in the United Arab Emirates, pending extradition to South Africa. We asked this week, how soon might they be brought back to South Africa, and whether the country is ready to be captured again by other nefarious interests. With immediate effect. When people zone. And I quote, in two years' time, Eskim's problems will be a thing of the past. People won't even remember load shit. Unquote. They put saliva on the paper. I'm in charge. That's why these fools are running around here. I'm in charge. And then they share that zone. Point of order, Chaperson. Order, Chaperson. Point of order, ruling party by point of order. Must step aside within 30 days. No, I'm not going to apologize. He has no brains whatsoever. The AFP president was sabotaged again yesterday. Well, sabotage, that can be This is not a shit. For today's conversation, let's welcome uh, Sunday Times investigative reporter Tandukolo Jiga, Professor of Political Theory at VETS, Professor Lawrence Hamilton, uh, as well as Professor Jack Kotze, who's been on the show before. Uh, he's a political analyst and teaches uh, politics at UNISA. Let us start with the, the whole development of uh, the, Guptas, the, the two Gupta brothers being arrested uh, pending their extradition to South Africa. Why does South Africa want the Gupta brothers extradited? What, what, what are the charges that they are, that, that they are facing? And who, who are the people who have been arrested? Shall we start with you, Tandukola? Thank you, Ramai. The question about, um, you know, why does South African law enforcement want them here? Top of the list would be that they should come back to South Africa to answer questions around um, issues of money laundering, corruption, allegations. We would have seen in the past few weeks and months that a number of uh, their associates have been arrested relating to different allegations at different uh, points, uh, which relate to Transnet. Uh, Particularly, you would remember that um, the likes of Eric Hood who was at the forefront um, as a Gupta lieutenant of a number of contracts at Transnet. And uh, the former group chief executive at Transnet, uh, Siabonga Kama, is amongst those. So that's the first point where they actually want the Guptas to come and answer those charges. Seems like a strategy that uh, the NPA has decided to adopt to actually take uh, matters piece by piece because there's a lot of other matters, which also include the Estina uh, dairy farm allegations of corruption there in the free state. Mm. You see, we, we often talk more generally about the Guptas. Now, in this case, who are the people who have been arrested in, in, in the UAE and, and why are they important in the whole saga? The most important ones, it would be the two brothers, um, Atul and Rajesh Gupta who were seemingly the mastermind behind state capture throughout the past nine years of uh, former President Jacob Zuma's uh, regime. Those are the two important and key personnel that played a major role, whose names cropped up at every corner that, you know, um, 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 state capture was mentioned. And uh, that when we reported 
um, they were the masterminds behind uh, capturing of uh, state-owned entities, capturing of the president himself, etc. Yeah, Professor Kotze, there has been much excitement about the development, as I said at the beginning. But how long do you think it might take for the extradition itself to happen? Or are we rejoicing too early as a country? Good afternoon, yes. I don't think we should expect them to be here in the next few weeks. Uh, it can be a few months or it can be even longer than that. The, the best case scenario is still this year. I think the more realistic scenario is maybe early or sometimes in next year uh, or even longer. It all depends on one thing, and that is to what extent there's going to be challenges to the extradition. Um, it must go after the administrative uh, functions have been fulfilled, um, and that is being done at the moment between the South African mainly the Department of Justice and the National Prosecuting Authorities and uh, those on the side of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, based on an um, extradition treaty that was concluded uh, by July last year, so at least we have an, a treaty that was negotiated for quite some time between the two countries. Uh, so there is a, quite a firm base for that. But um, once this is finalized, the, the administrative bureaucratic work, then it must go to a court in the UAE, where the, it is presented to the court so that they can then finalize it and say, well, all the steps have been taken and completed in order to implement the extradition. And it is at that point where some problems can arise, uh, when there is either technical, uh, you know, for example, documentation that is not complete or that is not as it should be, or or it can be challenged by the, the Guptas themselves. And I think that we can expect that they will do that um, in order to avoid being extradited ultimately. But once all of, all of these things, steps have been taken, um, then, they, then they, they should come to South Africa um, as, um, and immediately been, be inducted then. Professor Hamilton, quite a number of organizations have welcomed uh, the, the arrest of the, of, the, of the Guptas. Corruption Watch described it as absolutely significant. Do you agree? Or is that an overstatement? Good afternoon, uh, all. Uh, yes, um, I, I don't think it's an overstatement. I mean, given what we've been through, given the the Zuma years um, and the Gupta, Gupta involvement, given the amount of money, it's not just a question of the kind of manner or form of state capture, but the amount and effect of those funds having been swindled away is of course massive for our country um and so this turn of events frankly was surprising i mean i'm not sure how many people saw it coming obviously those involved in the process were hoping it were coming but uh, but it is a it is a most significant turn of events but I'm afraid we shouldn't get too excited, as, as, as the other speakers have suggested. There will be many challenges. And the first challenge will be, of course, uh, an application for bail. And the question that one has to ask oneself very quickly is, um, how likely is it that the Gupta brothers will stay in the UAE if they're successfully out on bail? Um, unfortunately, India does not have this kind of treaty with South Africa, so they could easily get themselves to India, and then we're back to square one. So it is a very slow and deliberate 
legal process that, as Dirk has just suggested, takes place initially in United Arab Emirates. Obviously, South African agencies need to be part of that process. And one would hope that they have all their ducks in a row and they're uh, getting in, getting their their um, their legal process as quickly up to speed as we would hope. Mm. Yeah, and and uh, and Professor Hamilton, I mean, you you perhaps along with uh, with uh, Professor Kotze have spent quite you spend your whole lives studying politics and analyzing things back and forth and, and uh, inside out. Uh, you know, one would have thought that capturing a state or a head of state would be such a difficult thing, almost impossible. What what was the modus operandi of you know used here? So I think the first thing to say is that it is unusual. The second thing to say is that, of course, corruption in politics is very normal across the world. But I think the major difference here is that we have a situation in which a family or a group of powerful um, economic agents managed to capture the leader of the most important party and the president. In other words, they have a direct line to someone they manage over time. And remember, this goes back a long way. I mean, supposedly it goes back to as far as 1993. Uh, but effectively, over time, they get into a position where they either have Zuma in the palm of their hand for various economic reasons or they um, simply are greasing the palm as often as they as they can. And he, he thinks that it's in his interest to carry on and allow these individuals to have their sway and have their way uh, within various uh, components and parts of the state. It's an absolute, it's a catastrophic uh, outcome for South Africa. And I think the the blame has to lie squarely on two, maybe three factors. The first is, of course, the person of Jacob Zuma and his his allies. That is that they they lack the simple propriety to stop this happening because, of course, it is in their ken and in their power to stop this happening. They they allow this. They enable this. Uh, the Guptas themselves are are of course. Um, allegedly guilty, and we will we will hopefully one day find out the result. But there's another thing that I think we ought to focus on, and that is that the governing party, the ANC, thanks to the way in which we elect our leaders in South Africa, it's very difficult to hold our individuals and leader, the individual leaders accountable. We vote for parties, not uh, uh, representatives from constituencies, and that was a consequence of a decision made around between the years of 1994 and 1996. Um, and so accountability in South Africa, political accountability, where we can hold leaders, whether they be leaders of the country or local leaders or regional leaders, directly accountable for their actions is crucially institutionally mm, mm, missing in our context, mm, in our mm. polity. Uh, Professor Kotze, we, we, you know, did, did you in your wildest dreams think that, that something like this could happen? Think back to 1994. Think back to Nelson Mandela. Look at the history of the ANC itself. 
Did you ever think that something like this could happen? Well, if we place ourselves back into that time, I I would say most people, including myself, will say no. I think if we look now back and with the, the hindsight, the knowledge of hindsight, and the analysis we can do now is to say, well, I think what what the, the Guptas they arrived in South Africa at, at that stage, you know, in the early 1990s, um, and I think one of and not as very wealthy business people, so they they made themselves here in South Africa, and I think what the way in which one can explain that is that from a strategic point of view, they realized that South Africa is is in a completely new situation. It's a radical transition that's taking place. It's a new government that comes into power um, with some, most of them with not even previous government experience. So everything is new. Um, and therefore, there will be therefore new opportunities also for persons from outside who hasn't been involved in business, in, in business with government in the past, who haven't been involved in, in decision-making in the process, and from a business point of view, it created huge opportunities. Um, and I think this is where they saw the gaps and they saw the opportunities. At the same time, and later on in the first, let's say, 10 years, there were the one thing that we don't talk about is the arms deal. Now, the arms deal, I would say, to some extent, was almost the first step in terms of the state capturing that took place because the arms were exactly about a very central component of the state, and that is defense. Um, and there, some of the major uh, forms of, of corruption al already developed. And I think that gave them a preview of what are the possibilities in dealing with, then later, especially with SOEs, you know, like ESCOM and Transnet and Praza and, and all of them. And that business with government or business with the state um, became, therefore, a soft target for business people, private sector business in general. They, in a sense, led the way, but one should not accuse them alone of doing that. Many other businesses in South Africa and some reputable businesses became involved in it also. Um, uh, plus businesses like Busasa, for example, you know, which did become full-heartedly involved in, in this process. So, the, uh, so on the one hand, it is the, the political change or the constitutional change or the societal change that took place. At the same time, also, especially during the late 2000s, um, and from 2007 onwards during the Zuma era, the ANC was also changing. And it was changing from its idealistic way of looking at South Africa and the role that they were playing to seeing what this creates opportunities for us um, in terms of providing, giving us a, a life, giving us careers. Um, giving us economic opportunities, making up open opportunities from whether it is black economic empowerment and other means in order to have access to the economy. Um, and I think this is relatively unusual compared to others, other countries where there's an old established sort of governing structure and the transition between governments are more or less significant than what we've seen in the mm. early 1990s. Mm. Hey, Tanukola, I'd like for you to come in here because you've reported a lot on both the the goings-on, you know, on corruption in state entities, but also you, you, you've, you've reported a lot on, uh, on, the, on the State Capture Commission itself. Now, in, in our country, you know, we, we have got, we, we have what are supposed to be checks and balances. And I'm talking here specifically about what, what was happening in the, 
in the in the public enterprises uh, sphere. Uh, I mean, you've got the PFMA, you've got Parliament through Scopa, you've got the Auditor General. How how did the 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 people who are stealing money from these institutions succeed to do this? Would you say that maybe we need to review how how you know how how those checks and balances work? Um, certainly, Pramak. Uh, 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 um, uh, you know, one of the first things that we we had those checks and balances were there, but the way that the Guptas found ways around it was to, um, like you said, capture the the, the head of of state. Um, it was not actually um, uh, such a sophisticated thing that they did. You know, like Professor Hamilton said, there was already a template. Uh, there were other companies that were doing this thing. It's just the scale that the Guptas did um, uh, did this thing. So they captured the head of state. Uh, you've got um, uh, via his son, uh, made the son a business partner, etc. And the head of state, of course, had quite a lot of financial uh, problems. Now that you've got that head of state, in your in your corner, he then uh, appoints enablers. I mean, from ministers uh, up to the executives in the state-owned uh, entities that are going to ensure that uh, the checks and balances um, are actually um, uh, broken. And one of the ways that they were doing this thing, particularly when it came to issues of uh, contracts multi-million contracts, they would, you know, go into this thing called a confinement, uh, meaning that, um, you know, the the, uh, Transnet or uh, ESCOM, um, you know, can call upon two or three companies uh, to say we are looking for um, a supply of ABC. And it's not open to to scrutiny. So it's dealt with internally. Um, hence, the enablers become important at, at, at the state-owned uh, entity. If you've got your uh, Brian Molefe, who's the chief uh, executive, you've got your chief uh, financial officer, Anoj Singh, who uh, is singing from the same hymn as, um, as the chief uh, executive. Uh, you've got people also in the bid adjudication committees who are singing from the same uh, hymn. Then you you avoid um, uh, accountability. You actually go around PFMA. That's how they were actually beating the system. Our checks and balances were not um, um, weak, but it was um, how the system was uh, literally being broken down. Um, and I'll take you back to uh, the fact that you know National Treasury, for example, uh, when they tried to do their work uh, to implement checks and balances at Transnet they were consistently uh, blocked from doing um, their work uh, at, at, at Transnet and, and at, at other uh, state-owned entities. So the, the, the way the system worked was to actually break those checks and balances. That did not only end with uh, procurement. Uh, you would also see that they then, it, it, it then moved to also law enforcement, where you also break law enforcement uh, agencies uh, so that whatever that you are found guilty of uh, or have flouted at state-owned entities or at government department, there is no proper investigation and there's ultimately no prosecution. So it was a systematic breakdown of governance um, as a whole um, that actually enabled 
the whole state capture machine to to work. Like uh, Chief Justice Zondo recommended, there needs to be minor changes, for example, in how we uh, appoint uh, board members, etc., etc., in our state-owned entities. Because then you found ministers bringing uh, people that were being recommended to them by the Guptas. So the checks and balances were not actually bad, but it is how the system was actually broken down uh, for the benefit of the uh, of the Guptas by the um, state capture and enablers. Professor Hamilton, Ravin Gordon, just 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 to get to the to the cost of of state capture. Uh, to us as as a, as a, as a country, I, I think I saw somewhere where Pravin Gordon was estimating two hundred fifty billion. But could could that really capture the full cost to the country uh, of state capture? How, how do we quantify the harm done by by the Guptas and and their fellow travellers? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Tanda Kulu uh, describes the dynamics very very well, um, and I and I also think Dirk's point about a state in transition is a very important point. Um, to your to your question, um, of course, it's possible to give a figure. You know, we see the 57 billion bandied around. We hear about the 250 billion uh, that you've just uh, described. Um, I think, I think actually, in terms of an assessment of the real cost in both financial, reputational political terms, it's very difficult to put a figure on this. And if we could, could could put a figure, it would go into the trillions. Because of course, what we're looking at here is, is the description you've just heard, is a description of a state that is literally being unraveled. It's, being, it's having all of its capabilities undermined by this uh, nefarious um, grouping that is able to hold on to and maintain power. Um, and, and, and again, I go back to the point. Uh, while I, I agree that the, the, the point around checks and balances and all of those legal procedural um, components of this, I think the real point, the, the, real, the, 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 the thing that we really need to look at is how is it that we have let ourselves that the country has let itself get itself into a position in which the, the liberation movement turned major political party, of which I was a massive supporter way back then, has turned itself or has been turned into, thanks to what was just described, into basically a, a, a cabal of um, criminals. Um, and um, uh, that is a, that is a, it's, it's, it's a huge cost to the country. It's a huge cost, not just in terms of the money that is taken out. It's a huge cost to the country in terms of, most importantly, the reputation of the states. Those people who are interested in, in investing in this country in various ways, the first institution they look at is the, rep- is the state. How capable is this state of maintaining procedures, maintaining law and order, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not just a question of the, le- the legal structure, it's a question of the political structure. And one of the reasons why we have lost this capability is we do not keep our, we're not able rather, because of the system design, to keep our representatives to be servants of us, not the other way mm. around. Professor Kotze, I, I would like to ask you, you know, to take, you know, for you to lead us in another direction. Supporters of, uh, of Jacob Zuma and the Guptas, 
have have tended to to engage in a kind of uh, what aboutism, you know, to say if you're saying that look, the Guptas and Zuma captured or the or the Guptas captured Zuma in the state, and then they turn around and say, yeah, what about white monopoly capital? You know, should should we buy that? Is the state always there for the taking by whoever dares to try? Well, ideally speaking, and from I, I think from a political science point of view, and the theory and the theories of the state and of democracy, obviously not. Um, this, 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 the state should be there, and there's obviously different perspectives also of what is the role of the state. Should it be a state in the context of a sort of a social democratic con- uh, context, or is it a state within a very minimalist um, context of a more of a liberal or a, a related sort of a perspective? So there is not just one role for the state. It really depends on who's the, what is the political culture of that society and also what is the, the culture of the leading political party that forms the government and drives this. Um, but, but the state, in, in the, I think what most or many of the South Africans think about the state is that the, the state is, is part of the process of, tri- of, of, de- of leading development. But it is should not be the dominant state that, that does everything. Um, and I think the involvement of society in functions that are related to state functions become now more and more uh, pronounced. We see more and more the idea of a social compact, which is quite similar, I would say, to the idea of a social contract, which is more coming from the political philosophy tradition, uh, the idea of public-private partnerships, there are many names for that. You know, corporatism, some called it also. Um, and I think what we are seeing is a change in the role of the state and the, and the, and the responsibility of the state for, in the eyes of many people, where they believe that the state must do most of the, uh, the functions uh, in society and, the, for example, creating jobs, be involved in economic development, provide education and health and all the other social services. Um, over time, that has changed. We have, in a sense, now a parallel structure next to the state, which provides many of them also in the form of private security, private health, private education, um, and all sorts of uh, now even starting to involve in you know providing some of the the services at local government level, together with uh, in, especially in smaller towns in Johannesburg and other places, filling of bottles. Um, so that the, the notion of what the state is be, should be is at this stage rather flexible. It is not that we have a very a consensus about what it is. I mean, take for example the ANC versus the DA. In the past, they had two very different views of what the responsibilities of the state are. Um, the same with one can say those parties more to the left, like the EFF and in the olden earlier on the PAC also was helpful. Um, so I, I think one of the, the contestations in South African politics is exactly about this. What should be the responsibility of the state, the role of the state in relation to society, maybe you can say even civil society? Um, and how do we relate to each other and how is the state sort of structured around this? So I think this is an, invol- an evolving topic or an evolving theme in South African politics. Um, and I can see lately, especially under President Ramaphosa's lead, that that is moving away from the traditional ANC position to one which is actually making now compromises. 
towards the private sector and towards civil society more of saying, well, we need mm. the partnership. Just, just, to, just, just to close off uh, uh, very quickly, uh, uh, Professor Hamilton, uh, is the state always ready for the taking by the, by the brave and the daring? Or is that a, a, a uniquely South African thing where, where everybody feels that it's their turn to eat, in a sense? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously there's that potential. Uh, and if we look at this historically and comparatively, we see that we see lots of other examples of this. Um, and I think that the state is for the taking when the state is either in a in a in a state of transition, or it is set up in a way that weakens its own capabilities. So even if Dirk is 100% right that we're in the in the condition of disputing the role of the state. Even if we were to agree that the state has a minimalist function, which I wouldn't agree it does, but even if we were to agree that, it still has to be capable. It still has to have the capabilities. It still has to follow its own procedures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what we have seen is a, state, is a state that was for the taking and was taken. But of course, that's, that's happened in many other places across the globe. The, our responsibility as citizens, and that's where we should really be looking, our responsibility as, as citizens is to say to our state, this is unacceptable. We need to put in place representatives who do not allow this. So there is an idea, just to finish off, there's an idea that somehow you can put in place all of the rules, regulations, and institutions that seal this matter, that'll make sure, that make sure that the state is not always for the taking. But actually, that's not really the case. There's always a way around the rules. It depends often upon the culture, et cetera, but there's always a way around the rules wherever you are in the world. And so the development of a democratic state, which is what we're involved in, remember, we're only a, we're only a young developing democratic state, is a, is a very, very difficult task. And many of the legacies of colonialism and apartheid still live on in these, in these conditions that we're looking at now. The nature and form of our state institutions and our SOEs are partly inherited from the apartheid state. And that cozy relationship needs to be broken down. And, and, and Dirk is right, the Ramaphosa um, administration is starting to break it down. But we, as South African citizens, need to take much greater responsibility yeah. for who we put in power mm. to mm. represent. Tanukolo, I want to give the last word to you. Uh, the Zondo Commission has said it has finished its hearings and all of that. Uh, where do we go from, you know, from here now? Because the, it was supposed to give us uh, a direction, you know, going forward and hopefully help us to make sure that uh, the state doesn't get captured again. Yeah, but um, here, uh, I mean, um, you know, um, the Commission um, has done its, uh, its job uh, so far. And they've given over everything to uh, to the law enforcement uh, agency. Now the ball is in the national prosecuting authorities' um, uh, hands to start uh, acting on those. Uh, and we are seeing uh, the wheels of justice uh, turning as slowly uh, as they are. Uh, but we are seeing NPA taking some um, 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 serious uh, steps. Um, and, you know, one important thing you know, from uh, uh, I took from uh, the NPA, they said, you know, uh, part of what we've 
got from uh, the commission. We still have to get uh, the Hawks and the ID to investigate. It is not about what we know. Uh, it is about what we can prove uh, in court. And I see, I see that uh, in this strategy of theirs, uh, instead of uh, bringing uh, 20 people in one case at, um, at Estina uh, or in the, in, in, in the Transnet matter, they're taking five people, four people. So they're breaking things up a, a little bit. So we need to see um, the NPA moving uh, on the cases. Um, Zondo Commission um, 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 provided quite a lot, of, there's quite a lot of documents, quite a lot of evidence that was uh, uh, provided uh, to the Commission. But now it, it, it is really up to the uh, law enforcement agencies to take these to court and ensure that they actually, um, you know, uh, win cases. It is no, it, 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 it is pointless also to, you know, aim to uh, convict someone uh, uh, for two billion rand uh, money laundering uh, scheme, whereas you know you can actually get the same sentence for convicting them uh, um, in a five hundred uh, thousand uh, money laundering scheme. So I think, I mean, now the, the ball is really uh, uh, on the NPA's mm. side. Okay. With our eyes uh, on the NPA and the Hawks uh, in, 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 in another sense, uh, we, we will we'll wrap it up here on the Sunday Times Politics Weekly. Uh, and, and I'd like to thank our guests for this week, uh, Sunday Times investigative reporter, Tandukolo Jiga, a political theorist, author, and teacher of politics at Wirtz University, Professor Lawrence Hamilton, as well as uh, Professor Dirk Kotze, uh, who's a political analyst and lecturer at the University of South Africa. Uh, we appreciate your time. I'm Mike Siluma. Until next time, do stay safe, stay blessed, and let's do good for our country. <laughs> <laughs>